In this 19th chapter, we have been considering this vision of this warrior king who is mounted on a white horse. We have been focusing on his names, but what we want to look at tonight is his mission. He is a man on a mission. And that he's on a mission is very evident, first of all, because he's on a white horse. Why would he be on a white horse if he wasn't on a mission? It's not ornamental, him sitting on a white horse. He's mounted and he is about to transit. It's symbolic of one who is to go forth swiftly, as on a horse, to go forth powerfully. Also, that's why heaven is opened. It's not just to let John see in. It's to let this rider on the white horse out. He's coming out. He's on a mission. He's going down to the earth. He is going forth as a warrior on his horse to warfare. So heaven is about to do something on earth through this King of Kings and Lord of Lords to do something the like of which has never been seen before at all. Now there have been things like it been seen, but this is different. This is powerful. I wouldn't want you to think that this is the first time heaven is doing things on earth. No, heaven is always doing things on earth. Heaven is frequently being opened over the earth for various providences and various dealings. We must never think heaven will not intervene on earth until the end. That God will never do anything from his throne until the end, until the day of God. We must never think that. In fact, as we study the Bible, we find that heaven has been opened many times. And heaven has interacted with earth on frequent occasions. And there have been many visitations from above amongst us. We know that angels are frequently coming. Ascending and descending through Christ. Sent on missions. There was a Gabriel, you remember, came on occasions to bring announcements, denunciation to to Mary and to Zacharias. And also... Frequently judgments are poured out. Heaven is opened and judgments are sent to the earth from the throne of God. And that's been very prominent in the book of the Revelation. We saw the seals opened and the bowls poured out, the vials emptied and the trumpets of the Lord blown in heaven and things happen on earth. So heaven is frequently intervening on earth. Frequently sending providences and judgments Amongst us. Heavenly interventions. On our planet. Sometimes deliverances. God comes down and delivers. His people. You remember that God came down at the flood. Heaven must have been opened at the flood. Because God came down. And he shut Noah in. And he opened the heavens. And all the rain. All the waters fell through. And you remember he came down at Babel. Didn't it say God came down at Babel to look at them? He confounded them. He visited them with the judgment of diverse languages so that they had to scatter upon the face of the earth. And then he came down at Israel's redemption, appeared in the bush, raised up Moses, came down at Sinai. And that especially is a a foretaste and a forerunner 
of the advent of God among men. Coming down in Sinai among his people. He rose up from Seir. He came from Sinai. He shined forth from Mount Paran, the Bible says, as he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand there went a fairy law for his people. So he came down at Sinai. And then Christ's first coming was a mission too from heaven to earth, wasn't it? Christ the Son of God came down. In fact, he said it. He says, I come from above. I came from heaven. The Father sent me. Heaven was open when Christ came down. Although it's a very different mission from this. He came by the humble womb of the godly virgin Mary. And then you remember heaven opened at his baptism. Luke tells us that when he was baptized, he was praying and the heaven was opened. And the Holy Ghost came out and descended upon him. So there have been openings of heaven and interventions of God upon earth in different ways. Pentecost was heaven opened and the Holy Spirit poured forth. And whenever martyrs die, holy martyrs die, heaven opens to aid them in their death, their dying witness, and to receive their souls into the heavenly realm. You remember that Stephen saw that. He saw heaven opened and he saw Christ at the right hand of God. So I don't want you to think this is the only time heaven has intervened on the earth. But this is uniquely special. This is altogether different. This is universal and this has a finality about it. It's a coming down the like of which has never been seen before. Not anything like the humble appearing in Bethlehem, but every eye seeing him, and all the nations of the earth trembling because of him. A coming down that will lead to an event of universal consequence that will change the very face of this world. That it is a mission, unusual, special, and unique, can be seen in the dignity of the person upon the horse that is carefully described here. The Lord does not want us to make any mistake about it. This is not an angel. This is not a mere messenger. This is the Lord himself. This is God himself. This isn't even Michael or or Gabriel. He is the word of God. And anyone who knows the other writings of John will know what that means. The word who was with God, the word who was manifested in flesh in the incarnation, the one coming down is the divine Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, the eternal I Am. So he's not just sitting at the right hand of God and in the midst of the throne, where mainly we see him in the book of the Revelation, sitting in the midst of the throne, having all the glory, sitting, reigning. But now he's not sitting on a throne, now he's mounted on a white horse, he's depicted as risen from off the throne, and coming himself in person. That tells you this is a special mission. Nor does he come alone, because verse 14 tells us, the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. He doesn't come alone. Now the Lord Jesus has come to earth before. He came to Saul of Tarsus, didn't he? 
The heaven opened then, and Saul said, I, I saw a light from heaven. He heard the Lord's voice. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The Lord visited Saul in person. And Saul wanted to verify who he was. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. Jesus himself, whom you are persecuting. Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. He didn't have an army behind him then. He wasn't on a white horse then. It was a mission of grace. A mission accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit in the saving of a soul. And so this vision is not like that. Then he had no attendance, save his Holy Spirit working in Saul's heart. But here we have multitudes of attendance, multitudes of followers. And the fact that our Lord leads armies here. That's what it says, doesn't it? The armies which were in heaven. It's as if the whole of heaven itself is coming. He's just leading, as it were, the divisions. And they're all coming behind him. Heaven is like it. It's emptying as it comes to visit the earth. It's armies. That's to be noted. It's not ambassadors. It's not messengers. They're not coming as diplomats. They're not coming as preachers. It's not a gospel mission This that is pictured here in this vision. It's not something that's evangelistic or merely a mission, as it were, to aid the saints of God and to comfort them. No, these are soldiers. That's what the word is. The soldiers which were in heaven. These are creatures of war. These soldiers are bands of warriors. There's no mistaking the the word that John uses here to describe them. It's used on a number of occasions in the Bible. It's used to describe Roman soldiers. You remember how in Acts 23 we read that the chief captain, whenever he was afraid that Paul was about to be torn apart, what did he do? He, He sent soldiers to intervene. The very same word. Armed Roman soldiers, the military of the empire, were sent down to rescue Paul and to apprehend him and bring him in. Soldiers, military men. And then in Luke 23, we read that Herod, with his men of war, set Christ at naught and mocked him and arrayed him with with a gorgeous robe and sent him back again to Pilate. That was Herod's bodyguards. Herod's soldiers. And then we read that in the parable of our Lord Jesus Christ, whenever the people wouldn't come to the marriage supper for the son, they give all excuses and they mistreated the servants. You know what the king did? He sent forth his armies. The same word. And that's the parable of Christ being rejected, Christ being mocked, not coming to the supper, rejecting the gospel, and in the end, his father sends forth the armies to destroy the city of that people. I suppose that's a good illustration of this because you remember at the start of chapter 19 that there is a marriage supper to which people are called. Blessed is he that's called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This very same chapter. But there's people here on earth, multitudes, the beast and the false prophet and the antichrist and all the nations 
They won't come. They won't accept the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now the armies of heaven are coming. The armies of heaven are coming to make them a supper. Unto the fowls of the air. They refused the marriage supper of the Lamb. They've rejected Christ. And now the armies are coming to deal with them. And so that parable of our Lord is, is a good, good illustration of, of the teaching of this chapter. These are heaven's warriors. And so he's coming forth on a military mission. Now, of course, the Lord has led armies before in the Old Testament. After all, what's his name? He's the Lord of hosts, isn't he? The Lord of armies. And sometimes the word host, rarely, but on a few occasions, it's applied to God's people, the hosts of the Lord. Sometimes God's people are, are called that. But I think it's mainly a reference to the angels. The angels are the armies of heaven, the chariots of God. The angels are 20,000, even thousands of angels, the Bible says. And the Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. And that's a good interpretation of this portion. It's, it's the chariots of God. It's the, it's the holy ones. It's the angels. The armies of heaven. Now, I know that there has been a debate about the identity of these soldiers that are following the Lord. And there are two schools of thought. There are some who say, well, these are the saints. These are the, the people of God. And there are those who say they are the angels of God. And those who say they are saints, they emphasize the clothing because it says they are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and they follow him, they follow Christ. And that's a good description of Christians. Christians are clothed with white and fine linen and clean, and they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who say these are the saints, they will point out in verse 8, that of the bride it says the church to her was granted that she, she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. So we have the same description there. And we're even told the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And so they have a strong case who say, well, this is the church. This is the people of God. They're clothed the same. They have linen righteousness surrounding them. However, I feel that these are angels because of the work that they are obviously going to be involved in. Now, there is a difference between verse 8 and this verse. In verse 8 it says, To her was granted. She was gifted with the fine linen, with the righteousness, with the purity and with the cleanness. She was gifted with it. The church is gifted with it. We are not naturally righteous. We are not naturally pure and clean. We have to receive the gift of righteousness granted to us, granted to us in grace, granted to us by the gift of grace and imputed, imputed to saints. And we know it's a foreign righteousness. It's not ours. We never made it. We never wrought it together. This garment of salvation, the Lord in the marvel of grace has clothed us with the righteousness of the saints, his own righteousness. It doesn't say granted here. It says they're clothed. I think it can be used of angels who have a, a natural righteousness, their own righteousness, 
the angels who've never fallen, who've maintained their purity and their uprightness. And I, I think it can be used of angels as well. Unfallen angels. In fact, we sometimes read that angels are clothed in white. You'll remember at the resurrection, whenever the empty tomb was there, that those who came to the empty tomb, they saw two angels in white sitting. So they were clothed in white, these angels at the head and at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And in chapter 15 of of this book of the Revelation, we saw the seven angels coming out of the temple. Angels, mind you, they had the seven plagues. They were the messengers of judgment. They were coming out of the temple on a mission from God to throw out judgments upon the earth. And it says those seven angels were clothed in pure and white linen. Pure and white linen. So there is a case to be made for the angels being clothed in white as well. And I think this must be the angels who are attending the Lord. I think the nature of the mission determines the identity of these soldiers. In spiritual warfare, the soldiers are Christians. We follow the Lord in a spiritual way. And we're the soldiers of the Lord in a spiritual way. You know that the church militant on earth is like an army engaged in a battle, engaged in a warfare. But we don't carry the kind of weapons that these angels are carrying. But we don't get involved in this mission of destruction and violence and, you know, make people dead. The weapons of our warfare are definitely not carnal. We don't kill and slaughter people. We win souls. We win the lives of men. We don't destroy the lives of men. We have no calling to do that. No equipping to do that. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Our mission is evangelistic. Our mission is for the defense of the gospel with the sword of the spirit, with the means of the gospel. Our mission is not one of judgment, but our mission is one of salvation. This is a mission of judgment. This is not a mission to save men. This is a mission to judge men. This is a mission to destroy sinners. Not to save them. And the church is not involved in that mission. Our mission is one of rescue and salvation. It's the angels that are called as the ministers of judgment to carry out the will of God in that work. You remember how the Lord Jesus said, now he wasn't getting much help from the church militant on the earth at that particular time, because it all you know, gone and fled, or they would be about to do that. And you remember how the Lord, uh, knowing that he didn't have much strength in, in, his pe- in his people, and that wasn't their role to do that, Peter, put away your sword. He that lives by the sword will die by the sword. That's not your mission, Peter. You can't cut off people's ears. Even though they won't hear. Even though they won't open their ear to the gospel. They shut their ear to God and shut their ear to Christ. But still we, we can't chop their ears off. And, and, and a just retribution for that. It's not our mission. But the angels can do it. Thinkest thou not that I can pray to my father? You're a wee sword. Do you not think I can pray to my father? And he sent twelve legions. Legions? That's a military word. That's telling us of an army. That's telling us of an army have 
weapons far more destructive than the sword that Peter took out of his sheath. I can call 12 legions of angels, Peter. It's not the time. Remember how Paul said concerning the righteous judgment of God, he says it's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. God, mind you, not you, you can't recompense it, but it's a righteous thing for God to do it. Vengeance is mine, God says, I will repay. It's righteous with God to recompense that tribulation with which they trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the power of his glory. That's the angel business. That's the angel work. Fairy judgment. Fairy angels. Coming with his mighty angels. Here it is. This vision we can bring 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 to it and put it beside it. That's the interpretation of this vision coming with his mighty angels in fiery judgment. And then Jude, you remember, he said the same. Uh, he was telling us about Enoch who prophesied of these things. Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints. That is his holy ones, not necessarily the people of God, but the holy ones, the angels, to execute Judgment upon all. And to convince all that are ungodly of their ungodly deeds. So I feel that these are the, the holy angels. The righteous angels. We're left in no doubt of the nature of the mission that Christ leads. Because it is clearly implied in the vision in, in multiple of ways. It's clearly stated for example in verse 11. That he that sat upon that horse was faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. This is what he is on the horse to do. He's going forth with the armies of heaven to judge and to make war. It's clearly stated, isn't it? He judges and makes war. That's why he's on the horse. It's a mission of fiery, fearful judgment. A judgment of vengeance, which is holy God's responsibility. He is the judge of the whole earth, coming forth now to repay. And this repayment is repayment against sinners. Remember how the apostles said we were commanded to preach to the people and to testify, among other things, of Christ being the only Savior, but also to testify that he is ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. And at the end he judges because he is judge, you see. And he alone can judge. And sin, sin must be judged. If it's not repented of, it must be judged. It must be dealt with. And in the judgment he must make war because it involves punishment. It involves violence and conflict because, you see, sinners resist. Sinners don't surrender. Sinners don't humble themselves. Sinners don't bow down and turn. They resist. 
And so there has to be war. There has to be conflict. God meets them in their rebellion and crushes them. Now it's not God's delightful work. It's strange work to God. It's work that has to come about because of the nature of sin that is against him. But it's not a work that he delights in like creation or redemption. But a work that he must justly engage in because of the nature of sin and resistance to him. It's just, what does it say? In righteousness, the text says, in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Stubborn impenitence and defense, he meets with war. And of course he would prefer to create and to redeem. But this is stubborn resistance against him. And this is why the judge of all the earth comes himself. And he only can come. He's the only one who can judge, you see. Vengeance is mine. I repay. And it's a purely righteous war. That's why the horse is white. That's why the army is white. Clean and white. They're not like, you know, all the other wars that take place on the earth where everybody's stained, everybody's impure, everybody's defiled. There's no such a thing as a righteous war in the world because once man's hands get into it, it always becomes an unrighteous war in some way or other. It's depravity allowed to be let loose on a battlefield. Even in the name of righteousness, it can be a most wicked, vile, unclean thing in the hands of men. It always is. Man's limitations can never make it a, to be a righteous war. Uh, but this is a righteous war. This is righteous warfare. This, this white horse, this righteous judge, these white and pure and clean warriors with no defilement as they go out to judge the sinners. And of course, for it to be a righteous war, a righteous judgment, he needs a keen eye. He needs an eye that sees. And no nation can war a righteous war because no nation sees clearly, sees its army, sees the offenders. No, no nation has the eye to watch all. I know they have their drones and they do their best, but they always have collateral damage. There's always the innocent caught up in the violence and warfare of men. There's no sharp eye, no omniscient eye. No righteous eye to see all, to discern all, to uh, limit the, the actions of all. But this eye, do you see that this eye is described for you? His eyes as a flame of fire, searching, penetrating, accurate. With Christ, no misjudgment, no collateral damage. No mistakes, no accidents, no innocent harmed, no innocent judged, no saints caught up in the damage because his eyes are as a flame of fire and he sees all and he judges all clearly. He's not just shooting off a rocket as it were, you know, anywhere it wants to go. No, no, his eyes are directing it all to every sinner Every impenitent one, every ungodly, the base, the false prophet, the antichrist, whatever, accuracy. And his clothing also implies the nature of his mission. For a start, he dons all his crowns, doesn't it say there? 
that he have on his head many crowns. You know, you don't don the crowns except for public work, except for an event of state. I mean, the king doesn't sit in Buckingham Palace wearing his crown. No, he only puts it on for state events, for coming forth for something that's important. He gets all the crowns on, all those crowns that have been laid, as it were, at the, at the, at the footstool. Now he, he, he raises them all. He puts them all on as he mounts his horse. He's going out authoritatively. He's going out on a mission. He's going out leading the armies of heaven. He has to be dressed for the event. He has the crowns upon his head. It's official. Heaven's king is coming for war. And the angels see him arrayed in battle dress. They know what that means. And they go forth out after him. Following him. To do the business of judgment and destruction. Now the description of his clothes is interesting. A vesture dipped in blood. Now I can't spend long on this now. And I'm not going to because this will take us away. But this vesture dipped with blood suggests violence, conflict and judgment. And suffice to say that this warrior king is no stranger to baptisms of blood. Not a stranger to baptisms of blood. Not a stranger to having received them. Not a stranger to having meted them out. He's well equipped. He's dressed for the occasion. He wears his medals. He wears the scars of past conflicts that he has been involved in. Because remember, he hasn't come to earth yet. This vesture is dipped in blood up there in heaven. As he's about to leave, he's coming to judge the earth with all the regalia of judgment. And he has the right and authority to do this because his vesture has been dipped in blood. But that's all we'll say about that. And then verse 15 reveals to us some of the weapons of warfare, his instruments of judgment. There's a sword, a very sharp sword. Verse 15, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. And then there's a rod. He ruled the rod, them with a rod of iron. These are sharp and heavy, strong, unbreakable. They carry out their, their work as instruments of crushing and judging and warfare. Now, these instruments judge. They cut. They smash and crush. They can't be resisted in the arms of this king. They cut through all and they dash all to pieces. The angel of the Lord, you remember, stood over Jerusalem with the sword drawn in his hand. David knew what it meant. But here he is again with the sword, with the sharp sword. As Isaiah prophesied in that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan the piercing serpent. Even Leviathan, that crooked serpent. This is a promise of warfare against the serpent and the serpent's seed coming to the end, coming to the completion. And now he's appearing, this king, to crush Leviathan once and for all. He has a sword. By fire and by his sword, the prophet Isaiah says, will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. And then the parts of his body are highlighted in the vision. Eyes, head, and thigh. And here in verse 15, mouth, and by implication, hand and feet. 
the sword comes out of his mouth. In his hand, uh, we assume the rod is. And his feet are treading the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He's personally involved. It's hands-on work here of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His mouth, his hand, his rod, his feet tread the judgment. We know the power of his mouth because he spoke the world into creation. And he won't have to fire rockets and shoot cannonballs or any shoot bullets or anything like that. No, he, he just speaks and they're judged. He just speaks and they're slain. He just utters a word and they melt before him. None can stand before his word, the sword of his mouth. And of course we read in other places that this is a two-edged sword, a sharp two-edged sword. We read that in the start of Revelation. These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges, repent. Or else I'll come unto thee quickly and fight against thee with the sword of my mouth. You see, there are two sides to the sword. There's the grace side. The grace side that cuts us to humble us, to bring us down to repentance. And when that side is resisted, the other side must cut. To judge us with the word of his mouth. To cut us in his righteous judgment to fight against us with the sword of his mouth. Oh, the awful thing to have the sword of his mouth fight against us and slay us rather than melt us and break us and change us and humble us. Oh, let the word of God humble us, brethren, lest his righteous judgment spite us and cut us down. His feet are identified with the divine wrath. He treads the winepress of the terrible, awesome, fearful wrath of Almighty God. From this vision we learn Christ is God's righteous judge, the Lord Jesus. What does the Saviour say? The Father judgeth no man. He's committed all judgment unto the Son. That all men should honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. And here it is. It's all given to the Son. The Son of God. And he comes forth to war. And so the only answer for sinners is to sue for peace with this warrior king. And he offers peace in the gospel. He offers sinners hope and has long patience to present it. And the only hope for sinners is to cease their resistance to Christ. Cease their resistance to his gospel. And humble themselves and repent. And it's Christ that must be honoured. Muslims don't honour Christ. The Christ of the Bible. Now I know that they honour Allah. They worship God they say. But you know, that's not enough. It's Christ. Sinners have to deal with it. It's the Son of God. Jews say, well, we honor God. We honor Jehovah. We believe the Old Testament scriptures. We, we keep the law of Moses. That's not enough. He's committed all judgment onto the Son. If you're resisting the Son of God, if you're not believing in the Son of God, if you're opposing Him, you're at war with the Son of God. Religion's not enough. 
False religion is opposition to Christ. False religion is opposition to the Son of God. And the Son of God opposes all Babylonian false religion. It has to bow to Christ. It has to believe in Christ. It has to make peace with Christ on Christ's terms. Believe the gospel and repent of sin. And this vision also shows us that Christ will win the day. The warfare will culminate in complete conquest. He will have the victory in the conquest.